You're listening to The Bounding Box, where we talk about web development, geo-development, and everything in between. All right, welcome to The Bounding Box. So today I got a great guest here. I have Andrew Turner. So Andrew, please introduce yourself. Tell us who you are, what you do, what's your problem? Hey, Renee. It's great to be here. Uh, I am the director of Esri's R&D Center in Washington, D.C. I'm also the CTO of ArcGIS Hub. So that means I oversee the technical architecture, the team, product ownership, a lot of things like that. But I also have the pleasure of working on a lot of different projects with colleagues across Esri, including with you, you Renee, on a few projects and a, a lot of others as well. Awesome. So what's involved in the, the R&D stuff? We hear about it every now and then when people talk about Esri, and Esri's got like R&D, uh, they put a lot into the R&D and everything. So tell us a bit what that is and what it's about. Sure. So we and uh, my team joined Esri. We came in through GYQ uh, 11 years ago. It was started this pattern where Esri started these core product development teams across the world. So now there are, I think, 54 R&D offices around the world. So across the United States, across Asia, Europe, um, and, and all over the place. So each center generally comes in with some specialty. So our specialty was thinking a lot around web GIS, uh, social computing. So how do we make uh, maps and GIS really approachable to people who don't know GIS yet? They, we have a, a Vienna, Austria office, all about indoor geolocation. The Zurich, Switzerland office, all about 3D uh, and scene viewer. Um, we have teams about map labeling around survey, surveys. Uh, our Beijing R&D center does experience builder um, and a lot of technologies in, in ArcGIS Earth. So really the R&D centers are situating core development in a region that has expertise around a core of people that then grows and allows people to uh, co-locate when that was was more important, but still is important, um, and share and work on common problems, but those all fit back into the ecosystem. And then we get to work with our local communities. So we help run uh, dev meetups and hackathons, meet with in DC, we meet with a lot of customers, uh, which is kind of really great to then inform our product development, whether it's the products that I work on, projects that I help uh, prototype and innovate on or things that can pass it off to other colleagues from a technical perspective directly to them from the customer themselves. Oh, that's awesome. Now, and you mentioned like um, like a hub, like the, um, the social mapping aspect and everything. And that's really kind of like uh, what hub is, right? I mean, it started off as, if I remember correctly, the open data portal. Is that correct? Mm -hmm. And it ArcGIS became, open data. Yeah. ArcGIS open data and it became hub. Which was really cool. So tell us a bit how that works and how it's great for communities and agencies alike. Yeah, so when we built the ArcGIS Open Data and launched, I think, 2013 uh, with the US EPA, and we started getting a lot of different municipalities and organizations on board with sharing their data out. And what thing that I was excited joining um, Esri in particular is that a lot of governments use Esri and GIS data, and when they're not, that's fine. Uh, it's still data are spatial and really help people understand what's going on. And it was all around the um, under the White House directive and open government directives to share data. So whether it was motivation by just people believed in open data and transparency, or there were these government directives kind of saying you have to do it if you're a federal agency, at least in the U.S. and a lot of other countries, or it's a good idea to um, that really started that motion in terms of sharing out data. And we worked really hard to essentially give them a button, push this button to make your data open and we'll take care of the rest. And that's the great thing of like software platforms is they do the hard work, really hard work of getting the data into uh, a data stored out as a feature service. And then we gave them that button and now it comes out as a dozen other formats, great metadata, great search engine optimization, very findable and accessible. And that was very, very um, popular 
for sharing that data and you could start finding thousands of different open data uh, sites across the world. And then around 2016, 2017, we said, great, open data, so what? What does it matter? Is open data actually solving problems? Is it helping people find a place to live? Is it helping improve environmental quality and equity and access and transportation? So with that, we really said, open data, so what? It's really around the policies, around what a government's going to do, where they might make investments, but also how the community can dramatically affect whether it's redirecting or changing those policies investments or actually accelerating those things where they have agreement. So hub was the change in terms of thinking about, you know, building a great successful community, a city, a county, a neighborhood does not just the government doing all the work. It's everyone in that community uh, uh, com finding common agreement and then working together to make that happen as quickly as and equitably as possible. So hub then introduced this idea of initiatives, which is just, you know, it's a word that can be ambiguous, but we think of that as like something we can all agree on. Do we want to end homelessness? Yeah. Do we want people to know when to die crossing the street? Yeah. Cool. Well, here's where people are dying crossing the street. Here's where people have trouble finding housing. And here's what the government's going to do and nonprofits are going to do around this. So all of that was to say was they give the data, they set the policy, the community then comes around it and convenes around that hub. They are the spokes in the wheel that will make it actually turn and go. And that's been really successful since we pivoted to that in 2017. I think there's now 20 or 30,000 organizations that have hubs around the world. And these are multinational agencies. The United Nations does it. Many of the agencies within the United Nations, it's national agencies, uh, countries like uh, Kenya and Ireland, Senegal, um, Philippines. It's US EPA, HHS, uh, USGS, but it's down to states. I think there's 38 states that are using hub to share out data and policies and many small municipalities and individual neighborhoods. So it's really all scales. And what's great is it's all the same geography, right? So I know where I live, I think there's like 18 different agencies that are responsible for my street and the trees. It's like, well, my park is a national park, the trees, the urban forest, uh, the air is measured by NOAA and the EPA. It's like, well, they're all different agencies, but when you bring them together with data and maps, you can actually see them and understand them in that same place. And you can understand, ah, the best way to improve air quality is to make a local change with a national change and then a measure it with that kind of regional impact because people might commute across boundaries and things like that. So that's what's been really exciting and where we are now is not just having thousands of hubs, but how you start connecting them together to make networks of hubs. And that's really powerful because I don't think a lot of people that maybe um, haven't been around too long realize how tricky this was back like in the early 2000s and stuff and late 90s where, and I, where I worked at a public agency and if I needed data from another public agency, it was about half a dozen phone calls and they would send me a CD if I was lucky. And then some agencies wanted to charge me like the labor cost for getting that CD burnt from somebody, you know, whatever that was. And at some point they, um, I know in California anyway, they said you can't charge labor, you can only charge the media. So it was like $3 a CD or whatever it was. They had to burn for me and stuff. But yeah, it was really difficult to do that kind of work way back when. So just having the ability to go onto a hub site and regardless of the software I'm using, maybe I want to use R to do something. I can click a button and get the shape file for a data set and run it through my stuff I want to do and do whatever I need to do. If I'm a student, uh, like you said, or if I'm a citizen in the community, I could do whatever it is I need to do. And it's great. <laughs> yeah, I had a similar, I had a, you know, as a developer, I was at a hackathon and I built this really cool app to help analyze, you know, crime patterns and a little dashboard you can do. And 
was great. I submitted the competition. I didn't win, but it got, you know, recognition. And about a month later, it stopped working. And I said, I found out, well, the server's down. And they said, yeah, it, it crashed. I'm like, oh, well, can you turn it back on? They said, no, it literally fell off the desk. And it was the <laughs> open data server. And that's not our primary job. We're busy, you know, making the city safe. We'll get back to that later. Yeah. And so was that, that was part of the inspiration was thinking about how does open data not become an, a, a, an additional thing they do? It's actually the way in which they do the work. So what we've done with this is, and you said about agencies, is it's actually the way in which the departments of transportation and the police department collaborate is the police department has crashes, the, the transportation department has roads and will make changes. And by sharing the data, that's actually the way they find it themselves. When they go to Google and they find it, and it's through a hub that they said, oh, great. And I actually knew the person I could go talk to them. But then they have not just the shapefile, they actually have the API. And any developer in the world, you said any citizen can now open that Excel and not just have an Excel spreadsheet. They can open that up every single morning and have it updated with the live tree data, crime data, air quality data, whatever they want. It just integrates, as you said, in whatever tool they're using. So that whole part of our mission in our center was meet the user where they are. Don't make them have to come and ask for a DVD and now I have a file geodatabase and what do I do with that? Oh, it's a personal geodatabase. What the heck even <laughs> is that, right? You know, it's like, no, it's an API, it's JSON or it opens in R or it opens in Excel. And that's what's been really exciting as well is just getting that into the hands of people. Now it's, what do they do with it? And we're giving tools now where they can actually contribute back. Like here's the map I made with it. Here's the story I told with it. Here's the change I made in my community. And how do you actually build shared knowledge and wisdom as people say, I use the data for this city to build this app. Can I redeploy it in another city? Can I follow your practice? Can I follow your policy? We're starting to get to that place where people collaborate, not around just the data, but using the data to collaborate around policies and outcomes. That's awesome. I mean, it's a big shift in technology and the, the way things have come up over the years and stuff. And speaking of that, another one, uh, interesting one, I, I've seen this come up every now and then so with chat GPT and OpenAI and all this different stuff that's out there now. I mean, how do you see that maybe impacting how people look for data or you know work with spatial data? I mean, what are your, what are your thoughts there? Yeah, first I'll say it's going to transform how we work, uh, we work, period. How we build our software, how people interact with the software. Uh, although with the caveat that this isn't new technology per se, I my master's thesis was working with neural networks in the 90s. It's actually like 67 years old. It's just matrix algebra, right? We probably all took linear algebra at some point. We may not remember it. We may not have loved it, but it's the same thing. It's just very big, right? 150 plus billion parameters. Okay, now it gets complicated. What's cool is if you've ever played with it, and I was skeptical for a while. I'm like, uh, it's it kind of like, I've heard this before. Yet again, it's another change until I started playing with it. And the work that I know we're doing and seeing other companies do it where, you know, people, there's a, a, a phrase that's kind of become popular now is like, language is the new programming language, like English is the new programming language and whatever that is. And I can program in, in Mandarin or French or English. I can ask questions and it gives me answers. Now that's going to require people to think about obviously the, all the biases in the models themselves and accessing live data as much as possible, which is cool. Open data becomes that substrate where you're not using the AI as the information source, using the AI as the reasoning engine to go and fetch live data and bring that back to you. And the idea that someone can ask not just things like, what is my trash day, but things like, is crime getting worse in my neighborhood compared to the last three years? And how does that compare to towns like me in the Northeast US? And you can actually get a meaningful answer and a chart and a map back for you. It's like, I have an analyst in my, just at my whim to do these kinds of things, at least to jumpstart me down that path and then show me the sources behind those things. And so 
that idea right now that's kind of cutting edge. It's it's non-deterministic. So one answer might be great. The next one's not. So it's kind of this, it's going to reach this uncanny valley for a little while where it's like almost perfect, but not quite. And people are going to get frustrated. It reminds me of the Gartner hype curves, right? We're at the peak of expectations with these things. And it will be amazing. It's going to go down through this trough of disillusionment where we're like, mm, can't trust it for everything. And it's going to merge back out into what's called a plateau of enlightenment and productivity. And I think that'll happen very fast. I think we're measuring only in a few years. We're going to start seeing it in kind of every tool. So it's for anybody you know listening, it's learn this stuff. It's kind of like the internet in the mid late nineties where it's like, yeah, you shouldn't go and trust what you read on the internet. You shouldn't trust Wikipedia yet, but you should learn about it and know how it works. You should know how to build DHTML Ajax web applications, right? Um, because it might be a thing. Now it's like, of course it's a thing. But back then it was like, maybe it isn't. Maybe it is this information superhighway isn't going to be. But if you want to know where the future is going, you learned it, you were on board, you tracked along with that. You might even help change that with that future. Same thing, I think, with AI. I think it's one of those big cusps that we're emerging on. People should learn it, get involved, understand it, not rely on it yet as the silver bullet, but understand how you would start using it now and how it'll evolve in your career and your work over the next five and 10 years. Yeah, it's amazing. Like if I um, it's I have it activated in my Chrome for the Google Bard, and and realistically, Bard is not very great at the uh, results it gives you, but in Edge, which is using uh, uh, the OpenAI stuff, the Edge results are really really good. For I do a regular mm -hmm. search, it'll inject its like um, OpenAI answer on top of my results, and they're I'm very surprised at how well they are written. And it's, it's kind of scary yeah. sometimes the results you get back from those, which are really nice. Yeah, I keep thinking it's going to reveal, um, there's an April Fool's joke with Google. It's like, no, there's no Google bot. It's just a whole bunch of pigeons typing in warehouses. And I keep <laughs> thinking that might happen here, but it's they're really fast, smart pigeons. Um, but yeah, it is good. But there's a, as if anyone diving into it, I mean, it's so easy now to get into. And I think that's what was the big shift as well. It's not just the parameter size, but how accessible it was. Like the best product marketing um, decision OpenAI made was making it just anybody can do it, right? And removed it from sign up for this beta. I mean, look at how slow Bard was and these other ones are to roll out and they're very technical. Like just you can go and plug it in and try it is one huge thing. You can try it out. Um, and then what you'll start seeing is just my advice for anyone playing with it is it's still, there's a lot of art there. Uh, the, the prompt engineering is the blackest of the arts right now where it's, you know, no one really knows what makes a good prompt, uh, system prompt and wrapping things, things like that. That's really hard. You know, people are playing fine tuning, but that's where, as you noted with Edge, it's like what other things does it integrate with? And there's probably some really elegant prompt orchestration engineering going on there that we're all kind of as a community learning and starting to share with one another that I think that's going to be um, that kind of what those, again, the language is the next programming language. Okay, what are the libraries? What are the design patterns? What are the systems? So play the thing like Langchain is one it's kind of like, it's like if you thought of what um, React did for JavaScript to provide you a framework, Langchain is one of those frameworks. And there's a few others out there I would be worth playing with if people are interested in, in trying out some of the new AI techniques. Yeah, it looks like on ChatGPT, if I want, I, I was looking at stuff, I wanted to do something in Go that I knew to do in JavaScript, but I had to be very specific. I had to tell it, here's the shape I have in JavaScript, the JSON, but here's the, um, the struct I expect to get in Go. So tell me how I can go from point A to point B and once I got very specific what I want, it would give me a great answer and how to like write stuff. It was, it was amazing. I loved it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, as a tutorial, it's, it is like the best way to learn right now. Um, you know, and you'll have to figure out cause it won't give you always the best answer. You'll have to figure out why, uh, which is kind of an interesting meta thing as well. But 
man, it, it's as an automation tool, as a learning tool, it is it is superb. I just use it for even just sure data, Google search, like search type things, because there's no ads. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> if nothing else, it's an ad free, <laughs> very clean search results there. So, um, but uh, yeah, definitely for developers out there, using it just for programming uh, is good. Obviously, if you have the ability to get um, GitHub Copilot or plug that into like VS Code, I'm playing with that stuff right now. Like that's just at your fingertips, building JSON structs, you know, write the doc for this class or this object. It's like, there it all is. Cool, I'll, I'll wordsmith it. But man, I just, you gave me all the syntax, all the baseline there. I can just, it's having like, again, like an assistant right there to help you out. So it's, yeah, it's really amazing. So other than like all the AI stuff going on right now and everything, is there any other technologies really exciting you at the moment or things that you see uh, being important coming down the line? Yeah, I do. I think I mean, one of the other technologies I've been playing with that's, again, been around for a while, it's gone through a few hype curves, so I'll say that with a caveat, um, is augmented reality. Uh, I think, you know, obviously Apple has made a big splash with this with their recent announce announcement the Vision Pro. Facebook becoming meta was another one there. I mean, the signals are there, right? Again, if you think of like early, mid-90s kind of stuff, um, emerging with the internet, that's where we are, I think, with AR. But just, I think of anachronisms where, you know, I have two kids and I have to explain things like, well, phones used to be attached to the wall and you had to be home dancer and you got a voice machine that was on tape. Like, what's tape? Like, the idea of removable media just blows their mind, right? It's like, hmm, yeah, that's weird. So if I think of, always ask myself is, like, two questions as I've gotten older is, What's the first technology that I could, I, you know, I don't understand. And my wife clarified, like, no, it's technology you just can't bother to learn. That was Bitcoin. And I think I'm right on that. <laughs> one. Um, but the one that I think will be the one that changes, like, I'll have to explain to my grandkids, like, yeah, you know, you used to go and have to look at a screen in front of you as you walked around and did these things. Like, didn't you trip and fall all the time? Didn't you crash? Yeah, it was really stupid, but that's all we had. We didn't have it layered over our eye eyeballs. So, you know, we're still, that's probably, you know, 10, 20 years away, but the idea that all this information can just be, quote, accessible right away where we need it and then overlay in the world and key to geography is that idea that can just annotate the world around me. So I can say what, you know, you can see it some now with like turn left, turn right, but imagine it highlighting buildings, routes, trees, information, displays, um, and then really fun things is like, I want to live in like, medieval Arthurian um, legend and all the buildings become like castles or thatched roof and things like that. Or I'm gonna live in, in um, sci-fi Star Wars, it just changes. So you're gonna see, that's where it culturally be interesting. But I think um, right now I've been doing some prototyping with some of the AR tools you can do now with like Unity and some of the um, ArcGIS for game engines. It's really, really cool. But the, just the pu purity of the, the accuracy of the geolocation isn't quite there. So you have to do some UX things. So that's, you know, where we are with it is the technology works mostly uncanny valleys. So apply a little bit UX, right? Like what used to have with um, spinning bars and things like that, which you still kind of have, but we value performance highly. So we try not to have as many of those. The same with the AR is like, don't put the label like on the tree, put it nearby the tree because it might be off by a couple meters. Um, but I would recommend people also kind of track what's going on there and look at how augmented reality can come into um, play with their work and particularly with uh, GIS. Yeah, it's definitely something I'm looking forward to. I'm hoping that I'll, I'll be around when uh, I, they can attach something to my glasses or I can buy my glasses, the frames built in so it does all that work for me. That's that's all I want, right? That's all I really care about. <laughs> no, so is that too much to ask? Yeah, exactly. I, yeah, I don't think so. It would just be a while. So Google Glass version 10.0 or something, whatever they, they come up with at some point down the road. Yeah, well, if you remember when the iPhone came out, right? It had, it had you know, it had the button, but it was, it was small. I haven't, I found my old iPhone. It's like, 
I feel like it's like half the size of the current iPhone. That's yeah. fine. It's really <laughs> slow. It had like six apps. Remember, there's there like six apps. Like you could do calculator and mail and Safari. And no, there's no SDK. We're working on it. And it was like, and it's still, yes, and now it's been 15 years or something like that, right? Yeah. Um, to now be obviously a foregone conclusion. So I'm hopeful with the investments with Meta and Apple and others going into it. I think with the Vision Pro, while it's going to be very expensive at first, I think they're putting the utmost on that human factors experience when people are going to start seeing, okay, that's what it could be. And then there will be the copycats and, and innovation that will just spur from that to where it'll start, it'll, it could ideally rapidly pivot around where everyone had a keyboard and a stylus and they said no. And you know, it was only like two years later that all they just went away, right? The people just said, oh, I can see it. I can see how it works and I can reverse engineer or just, I can't say no anymore. I'll just do it. I think the same thing will happen here. So it probably won't be that far before you'd at least have um, physical glasses you could put on that would have overlays. That's going to be exciting. Exciting time to town, Andrew. <laughs> no, it's a great time. Great time to be alive. Great time to be a developer, I think. Um, you know, flying cars, I don't know, that might not be our lifetime, but uh, nonetheless, we'll still have, uh, we'll be able to talk to our overlaid glasses. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Andrew, well, I want to be respectful for your time. But before I let you go, I just want to ask if you have any tips, tricks, anything people listening, it doesn't have to be dev or geo-related at all. Anything you want to drop? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, always be tinkering, you know, uh, just, I mentioned a bunch of technologies that just started with me just, okay, let me go grab something. Don't overthink it. Start tinkering with it. Choose a little project you want to do. I was doing a, I learned AR by wanting to build a board game with my kids that when they put the dinosaur card down, the dinosaur popped out and roared at them, right? It's like, I'm going to do that. It took me three days to do it. I'm not going to win any awards or get started a whole new business around it, but it's like, cool. I did something. I have a video of it. So if it stops working, I can always go back and saying that was cool. Um, and I work on the next thing. So just always be tinkering, choose a little project, play with it. And that's, from my experience, is always the best way to learn um, and inspire others. So if anyone does go out there and make a cool tinker, whatever it is, I'd love to see it. Awesome, Andrew. I appreciate it. I love tinkering. That's what I do, man. The skunk works all the time. <laughs> exactly. But share. Share early, share often. That's always my belief, too. Yeah. So. Awesome. All right, Andrew, I appreciate, cool. appreciate it, man. Thank you. Yeah, it was great talking to you, Ray. See you later. Thank you for listening to The Bounty Box today. Please subscribe for more content.